May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to have to come back to that Luke passage another time so that we can talk about mother-in-law versus daughter-in-law and three versus two and two versus three. But this morning... As we are continuing our summer preaching series on the missional gospel in Luke and Acts, it's actually quite timely that Bishop Kevin is here for confirmation and for reception. This is one of those church traditions that we are a little fuzzy about. But Paul's speech to the Athenians is actually a timely bit of scripture, particularly if we understand that this confirmation and reception are sacramental acts that mark maturity, but also send us out on mission. In the earliest days of the church, there was just a bishop attached to the church in every little community. He had no large geographic area he had to oversee, so that the bishop of Jerusalem or Antioch or Rome would preside at all baptisms. So you're baptized, and then the bishop can lay hands on you immediately and pray for the newly baptized persons to receive the power of the Holy Spirit then and there to serve in the kingdom of God in defiance of the kingdoms of the world. Now, unfortunately, perhaps for him most of all, the bishop cannot be present at every baptism. Our diocese stretches from Anchorage, Alaska to Corvallis, Oregon. So confirmation is a little bit harder to pair with baptism and happens for most of us much later. But what is confirmation for? Baptism conveys all the rights and privileges of membership in the body of Christ. What does confirmation give us that baptism might lack? This is the right in which a believer, after they have been baptized, makes a mature commitment to the Christian faith. And they also receive an increased gifting of the power of the Holy Spirit through the bishop's prayer for each of you as individuals. Just as the early church did all those years ago, the bishop lays hands on those who make their public profession this morning. So in terms of Christian maturity, we would all acknowledge that the Spirit's gift of forgiveness and baptism is actually just the beginning of work that is strengthened and enriched for us in confirmation. None of us, when we are baptized, instantly, magically becomes the Christian disciple we long to be. We grow up in Christ. And as we do, we should acknowledge that we want to take steps that mark that growth into deeper relationship and fuller commitment. This is one way we do that. Secondly, confirmation is a commissioning for mission. It marks someone for undertaking the vocation to which he or she is called. In this way, you can think of confirmation as kind of like ordination for those who might never be ordained. Although, if you want to, we have spaces available. (laughs) But unlike ordination... Lay people and clergy are confirmed. And that's because it's every Christian's responsibility and joy to proclaim the gospel 
and to live into a life of holiness. This mission that we're called to happens everywhere, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in the ordinary places of our everyday lives. So today, those of you who are going to be confirmed and received will receive the laying on of hands from Bishop Kevin to welcome you as mature followers of Jesus and commission you for a life on mission outside the walls of the church. Could you do without confirmation? Maybe, but let's not find out. (laughs) All of us called by God to serve in some way are given the chance to serve because if we're willing to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the strength that will work in us is not our own, not our own gifts, not our own wisdom, not our own resources, but God's. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you are being drafted into this mission that the Lord has been on from the beginning of history. And it's that mission that we see working in Acts in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, first shows up with a different name, Saul, and he's a zealous persecutor of the church. He's a notorious enemy of those who preach the gospel of Jesus. But he has his life turned around by that Emmaus Road moment where the risen Lord speaks to him. And Paul becomes the most Winsome, it wasn't the Emmaus Road, was it? It was Damascus, sorry. Uh, Somebody was whispering. Uh, I can hear you, I'm very tall. Uh, Paul, it's the second two levels. So Paul actually becomes the most winsome communicator the church had to offer. And when he puts his gifts into proper use, suddenly things start to happen. We have similar gifts that can be used for building up the body of Christ that we can share for the sake of the church. And in the same way that Paul was sent out on a mission, we are being sent out. When you exit this building later today, you're not walking into the same arena that Paul stepped into in Athens all those years ago, but it is the same world that Christ loves and that Christ has sent us to reach. The Areopagus may be better remembered as Mars Hill. It's the site in Athens where the intellectuals and the leaders of the city would get together in their robes and gather to debate one another, to engage, as Acts describes it, their famous habit of entertaining any kind of new idea and the latest philosophical fads. Imagine, if you will, a world where philosophical fads were even a thing you had to worry about. For our younger members, you should think of this, think of this like a Facebook comment section, but without the pictures of dogs uh, and without sort of eventually just devolving into name-calling. So Paul stands up in this place of debate and argument to speak about Jesus. But in this environment, Paul is not just some visitor from the provinces, promoting a strange new religion from a far corner of the Roman world. Paul has a first-class mind and a serious theological education, and he is more than prepared to go toe-to-toe with the philosophers of his day. And when he looked around Athens and saw idols everywhere, sculptures and likenesses dedicated to the various gods and goddesses of the Greeks, He was distressed 
at the sheer number of them. But he also recognized that there was in that place a deeply religious impulse, a desire to know God, and that that could be a tool for the proclamation of the gospel. You'll notice that he doesn't immediately tell the Greeks to pull down all their idols and burn all their statues. Instead, he tells them what he observes, that there was an altar inscribed to an unknown God, and that he intended to proclaim to them the God that they did not know, who was previously hidden, but who had revealed himself to the whole world in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He tells the crowd that the God they think they don't know actually has tried to make himself known to them. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives himself to all mankind and gives life and breath and everything. He goes on to say, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not so impressed by the Greeks and their learning that he's rendered silent. He speaks the truth in that place using tools that he has available, even if what he is describing sounds a little fantastical to their ears. He's describing, of course, a new thing for the Greeks, a view of the world and of world history as a stage on which God is acting for the good of all people, a view that is only made possible by what God has done in his life, by the power of the transforming Holy Spirit. Standing in that place, surrounded by all of those idols, those graven images forbidden by the Ten Commandments, Paul is not repulsed by the flaunting of the unclean, but reaches out to touch the lost with his words. Idolatry, of course, involves a kind of collective self-deception, where human wishes and desires are combined with material reality to produce a distorted kind of hope. The idol facilitates a hope of control, a hope of controlling our lives and the world around us, but also a control of the gods. But creation of an idol is also a way that shows that we actually don't know God or ourselves that well at all. The Athenians, who claim to know so much, are completely ignorant about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. And Paul speaks the truth in that place so that God's word can interrupt and draw the idolaters away from their foolishness. What was a secret before will be brought out into the light where they can see it, so that there will be no need for more speculation about this unknown God, the God who made all things, above all and in all and through all, this is the God that Paul serves and proclaims. 
And that God, despite his mysteriousness, is not as far away as you might think. That God has in fact come very close to humanity and taken our life and our death on in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God made flesh. That means that the God who made everything is not like the unmoving statues and idols formed out of the imagination of man out of gold or silver or stone. The true God is beyond our imagination. But out of an abundance of mercy, he forgives our ignorance and has invited all the people of the whole earth to acknowledge that there is one true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All this had been promised to those who are willing to listen and obey and sealed on their behalf by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like Peter in Cornelius' house earlier in Acts, Paul does not reject the work of the Holy Spirit that brings him to this strange place to tell this story that his audience has never heard because he has been commissioned to share the invitation of the Lord with those who are just so close to finding the way into righteousness. You are being similarly commissioned, as we all have been, to fight the good fight of the faith, to take your part in the mission of the church, not just by cheering supportively from the crowd, but by entering as a contestant. The good news, of course, is that none of us enters into this contest on our own. Like a boxer stepping into the ring alone, we have help because the medal that is being tested is not ours, but the medal of our faithful Lord Jesus. And he has already won every fight on your behalf. We do not have to be as compelling as Paul in order to be of service to Christ and his kingdom. We don't have to be skilled public speakers at all, thanks be to God. You don't have to have the faith that led the apostle to go all around the known world preaching to strangers about the truth of the gospel either. But when faced with the challenge of living in a postmodern culture in which we find ourselves, we can't just give up the fight and find a quiet corner to hang out in until things are settled down a little bit. The faith that we proclaim is not just a matter of private, personal morality. We have to take our stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and be willing to claim him as our Lord and Savior, just as he is willing to claim us as sheep of his sheepfold. Now that takes practice, and it may make you a little bit nervous, and that's okay. Particularly in a world where the two things that you cannot talk about in polite company are religion and politics, I got bad news you're going to eventually have to confess to somebody that you do believe some of this stuff. In fact, I'll go ahead and say, you're going to have to confess to somebody eventually that you believe all of it. The resurrection, the virgin birth, the incarnation, all the kind of things that make us a little bit nervous about faith in Jesus. Actually, yes, they're true. And you've got to own them for the sake of the gospel, as Paul did in that place. The challenge is to grow in our faith. Just as you've been growing from your baptism until today, just as we are all still growing as disciples of Jesus, so that we can be living witnesses to the truth of the gospel that Paul preached. He's the model that you should seek to follow, that we should all seek to follow. For practicing how to speak truthfully and deeply about the love of God and the sending of the church into the world for the sake of all people. 
whatever your story, I bet it's not as extreme as Paul's was. It's a little bit different. Paul had so much to be forgiven of, so much to repent for. You'll recall in Acts, when he first comes to the church in Jerusalem, they don't believe he is who he says he is. And while he's not shy about what he believes, as he developed into a preacher of the gospel, you'll notice that Paul does never, ever does he humiliate his audience. They're not all convinced, but neither are they driven away by the aggression of his language. He is seeking to create space for non-believers to come in and discover the truth of the message of Jesus Christ, as we all should do. This is the challenge for Christians in our time, but also throughout history, to speak the truth in love, without triumphalism, but with honesty and authenticity. And we have all the tools necessary to do that in our daily lives already. You need not have been down and out, utterly bereft of hope, down to your last dime to have a testimony about God's grace that's worth sharing. Just as you do not need to be an all-star Christian with a perfect Sunday school attendance record and a history of massive giving to the church, you just have to be able to talk about your life, your relationship with Christ, honestly, And tell others where you see and feel Christ at work in you and through you. And in a world where so many people are disillusioned to the point of despair, talking with someone about the hope that you have in Jesus, talking about someone about the journey that you are on, can be like a gulp of cold water on a hot summer day. And like Paul, we know the scripture And if you feel like you don't, you could know it better. (laughs) We know this long story of God's work to save his people, starting with creation and reaching a crescendo at the cross and the resurrection, moving towards God's final consummation of all things at the end of history. There is no better story that you can tell than that story in which you find yourself a part. Because there is within each of us This incredible testimony about how God's goodness is working in your life. Just as it happened to Paul on Mars Hill when he finished his little speech. If you find sharing your faith with others to be hard, it will be difficult to see the results. But when you talk about your beliefs, some people will actually want to hear more. Now others are going to mock you from the very beginning, and that's okay. But others are going to want to hear more, and some actually might believe that what you're talking about is true. And that response is not ours to control. But we have to have faith that somehow, despite the overwhelming odds, despite the inadequacy that you and I might feel as individuals, the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually at work in the world making new disciples. It's happening even now. And we are the greatest testimony to that truth. Because 2,000 years after Paul's speech, here we are this morning. The probability that you and I would be here proclaiming the love of Jesus is so statistically minute that it boggles my liberal arts math mind. (laughs) And yet, by God's grace, when we share our stories... 
when we share the big story that we are in the middle of, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is actually proclaimed by people like you and me. And the church goes forward and lives are transformed. And all of that is only possible because the unknown God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ and commissions all of us to serve in his kingdom. And we do not need to be fuzzy about that at all. Amen.